electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Zach Valisi. Today on our podcast, a market sell-off continues. Does a potential recession loom? Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari says inflation will come down thanks to the central bank's interventions, but it'll be a painful ride. I never focus on the stock market as a goal. Ultimately, it is our dual mandate that drives us. Alexis Ohanian, social media veteran, says stock slides don't make him any less bullish on tech's bright future. The fundamentals of technology are not going anywhere. The fundamentals of what software can do are not going anywhere. But, you know, we're in the midst of something right now that is the market reacting and markets are going to do what markets are going to do. Plus, Uber plans to cut back on spending and Doctor Strange is giving the summer movie season a strong start. So what are you watching? We're always talking about if there's anything good on Netflix, Anatomy of a Scandal. Amazing. No, I didn't like it. You didn't? It's Monday, May 9th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Here we go again. Stocks look to start the week down as investors prepare for a sticky situation, rising interest rates against the potential of slower economic growth. Last week, the tech-heavy Nasdaq lost 1.5%. The S&P and Dow both down about a quarter of a percent. It was the sixth straight losing week for the Dow. The day-to-day swings last week were dramatic. The Dow had its best day since 2020 on Wednesday when the Federal Reserve raised rates 50 basis points, or half a percent, for the first time in two decades, to fight historic levels of inflation. Fed Chair Jay Powell said the central bank was not considering a larger 75 basis point rate hike at future meetings. That was in response to a question from CNBC's Steve Leisman. You talked about using 50 basis point rate hikes or the possibility of them in coming meetings. Uh, Might there be something larger than 50? Is 75 or a percentage point possible? 75 basis point uh, in an increase is not something the committee is actively considering. But the markets reversed course after that rally and began to slide on Thursday. Bitcoin followed that sell-off. The world's largest cryptocurrency plummeted by roughly 10% and is now trading at its lowest level since January. Bitcoin is now down more than 50% from its peak price of $68,000 plus in November 2021. We'll start the pod today on crypto's slide. As always, Squawk Box anchors are Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. These markets never close, the crypto markets, and that, that uh, was painful over the weekend. Yeah, it's like 50% now on Bitcoin, from the right. highs. From the highs. Oh, wow. um, and, I, and I believe if you're talking about the new money, I think new money on average is in at 47000 or something. So anybody who's gotten in lately has seen some pressure. Do you think the selling is, is a function of the fact that they... That they that whoever was owning the, this Bitcoin or or, or or ETH or whatever else is was so in. leveraged up on yeah. other things in the market, or they were, or they were leveraged up on Bitcoin and and therefore had to get out to cover things 
the opposite way? I mean, what do you think is yeah. really happening here? No, I do think there's some forced selling that's taking place. And by the way, people have been blaming the retail investor for a long time. And maybe the retail investor has lost some interest here. But if you're talking about some big hedge funds that were all in the same trade, all leveraged, all had to sell those things. I mean, stop blaming retail investor. Talk about some of the, the, you know, the supposed smart money that could be blowing things up right now. I mean, you always see even quality names go down when crappy ones go down because a lot of times you gotta you gotta get money somewhere to cover the and you sell your winners to the pay margins off the and yeah that's what makes for a dicey market, which we're, we're definitely in right now across the board. I think there was, if you're talking about total positions for the S&P 500 and the, the Treasury market, the 10-year Treasury, you're still net long. But if you're talking about leverage positions, you're net short in those positions. And that's the largest we've seen since 2018. Leverage shorts, of course, can amplify liquidation of net longs when the S&P breaks down or when you see Treasuries really break out. And that's probably what was happening at the end of last week. Is this a is this breaking news? I like when the journal, on a weekend, you know, you got time to like assign Read. stories. Right. The, after a two-year run, the tech sector is feeling a post-pandemic hangover. That's like the top thing in the 10-point. It's just like a summary of, it's just like, let's talk about this. Is that yeah. what it is? It's, yeah. like, it's like what we do sometimes. So let's talk about this. It's, uh, yeah, this is happening. I'm glad they noticed. But technology is definitely um, pulling back uh, after it and, who knew at the beginning of the pandemic it would be such a boon for certain? It seemed like it was going to be bad for everyone as, as you know, markets sold off and right. we got really scared and we got a, you know, terrible, what, that one, what was the GDP for the one couple of, uh, couple of for one quarter? It yeah. was and jo- and unemployment and it looked dicey, but who knew that all the, you know, people, for people staying at home that these things were going to, even, you know, even like our parent company. Who knew that broadband, everybody was going to get broadband during the pandemic. Now no one ever needs it again. It's just you pulled a lot of growth forward, right? Right. You had people who bought all these things, got the broadband, got the computers. You pulled a lot of demand forward. Across the board, though. I have to tell you, I was out at the mall this weekend, and there... There is no sign of a recession inside. If you look at the crowds, I, I waited 35 minutes in line. Trying to get a parking store. space at no, places. To, to pay. To right. just, literally, there were 55 people in front of me and four cash registers. Restaurants, hotels. Yeah. It is like that. Yeah. With it, but the other flip side of that is they can't find any workers. When I was right. out in Omaha for five days, they never cleaned my room once. And they said it was because of the pandemic. They wouldn't bring food out and open the restaurant because of the pandemic. You know, these... Same thing. Four cash registers open on a Saturday. Um, I'll you know. bet your room was still okay. Not really. It looked like a tornado went through. Really? <laughs> I didn't have a lot of time. It was long days. See, I, I, maybe it's me. I'm thinking about my room would still be okay. I think because I, yeah. I just don't like things out of place. That's your OCD. I'm sorry. Oh, I no. don't. Tornado. A hotel <laughs> yeah. was always a tornado. Yeah. It's. It wasn't. It By wasn't. By the way, a, Becky, because we both stayed at the same hotel, I know. There yeah. was an option. You could have. I didn't do it either. After three you days, could have had you had, you had the option morning. after three days if you figured out how to reserve it, and I didn't have time to do that either. But someone has to come in, and that's yeah. that's the that's the yeah. problem. And then it would have been embarrassing. Three days later, it was a disaster. Let's talk about Uber this morning because um, people making reservations to get an Uber, uh, they may have to pay more. I think that actually may be what's underneath all of this. Uh, Uber CEO Derek Hauser-Shahi telling employees over the weekend the company will cut back on spending. They're going to focus on becoming a leaner business. This is according to an email obtained by CNBC. Kyle Strachey is saying he spent several days meeting investors in New York and Boston 
after last week's earnings report when he was with us on Squawk Box. And it was clear that the market is experiencing what he's calling a seismic shift. And he says that Uber needs to react accordingly. He wrote, quote, the average employee at Uber is barely over 30, which means you've spent your career in a long and unprecedented bull run. This next period will be different and will require a different approach to address that shift in sentiment. Khosrow Shahi is saying that Uber would slash spending on marketing and incentives and treat hiring as a, quote, privilege. Uber is just the latest company to warn of a slowdown in hiring. Last week, Facebook telling staff that it would halt or slow the pace of hiring. And Robinhood is cutting about 9% of its workforce. But it also seemed to me to suggest that um, free cash flow um, is going to be the name of the game. I mean, I think profits are going to be the name of the game. And this goes to how much you're going to pay when you get in the car. It, he's less interested. It's so interesting how the shift has gone from TAM, total addressable market. How big can the market be? Grow, 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 grow to maybe not. Maybe the total addressable market doesn't matter as long as you just make money doing it in your own little corner of the universe. Well, profits matter again, right? This is the, the, the refocus of Wall Street across the board. And I, I think you can say that but about any of the companies we just talked about. Um, any of the companies that did so well during the pandemic, you know, show me the money at this point. What does a medallion go for now? Does anyone know? I don't know. Remember, it was a million dollars before. Right, Uber and then it went really down. But the there's plenty of times where you know what we're going, gonna go down to DC and stuff. And it, it, I'm saying, yeah, let's take a cab. Oof. I, 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 yeah. I, I'm, Oof. What, what's eighty thousand dollars, Joe? That's amazing. So it's not. There's no. It's not being. It's not coming back. It's not. It's I don't not, know if uh, this is accurate, but. Um, there was one point where I remember it was the cover of the New York Post. Right, it was a lot. It was a million dollars. So, true or false? thousand dollars in twenty twenty. The demise of the taxi. The demise of that business is greatly exaggerated or not? Oh no, because I'd like not to grab exaggerated. one. It's not okay. The medallion I don't that used to be worth a million uh, bucks is worth a tenth of it. Not no, surprisingly, no I, I haven't moved into the new um, paradigm. Um, not surprising. Someone had like. Either my wife or my son has to call me an Uber if I need when I. They're not calling you an Uber. Book you an Uber. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, uh, right. I don't. I don't think it's on here. No, here's DraftKings. Um, <laughs> See, you have evolved. You can't do it if you really <laughs> exactly. want to. Exactly. I'm in a losing streak right now. I don't want to talk about that it's stupid. The summer blockbuster season it is off and it is actually running. The latest offering from Disney's Marvel winning the box office, Dr. Strangelove in the Multiverse of Madness, bringing in $185 million just over the weekend debut. It brought in an additional $265 million in international sales, bringing the global total to $450 million, Joe. So have you been to a movie? Have you been to a movie theater? No, but my uh, my wife and son go all the time. They they come into the city. That you know, he's a big film buff, and they go. He sees all the. He has to see every Oscar contender and everything else. So they've been they've been going. I have not, but I was going to mention. I was going to ask you whether you finally saw Power of the Dog because this guy is a pretty talented actor. This guy Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Yeah, uh, Cumberbatch. Because he goes from that from Power of the Dog to this, and so he's. Uh, I mean, that's. The totally different roles. Yeah, I think you have. That's what an actor right. should do: be able to take yeah. different roles. And by, and by the way, I love him as Doctor Strange. I didn't see this one yet, but you know, I've seen other ones in the series. He's very good. 
he was pretty cool in that Power of the Dog. I mean, he was a bad guy in Power of the Dog, but uh, great performance. You haven't seen that yet, Sorkin, Power of the Dog? I, I got to add it to my list. I'm going to add it to my list. The, do you remember what um, Wanda Sykes said about it, though? It's, uh, oh, yeah, falling asleep. You no, know, she Sorry. said, uh, I've seen it three times. I'm still only halfway through. <laughs> Which can happen. I, I've got a whole list of things. I'm I'm powering through all. I got a. By the way, Tehran is back on Apple Plus. So oh, I've I been, saw the I've first. Been, uh, the first one to me. Oh, that is that awesome. I was on the edge of my awesome. seat. Awesome. The entire. There's only two episodes out, and I didn't want to watch the second one. I said, you know, I'm going to save this. But yeah, I saw <laughs> uh, the. Uh, by the comes way, every Friday. You're, you're always giving me. We're always talking about if there's anything good on Netflix. Yeah. Anatomy of a Scandal. Amazing. Anatomy of I started. I started with Sienna watching Miller. Beyond. I didn't like it. So, I didn't like it. No, I didn't like you, it. No. You didn't? I started watching it. No. I, there's some reason we didn't like it. I'm, I can't remember. How many why. episodes in? Oh, only, we didn't get through the first one, well, the, through the very end of it. So maybe I. Okay. I mean, I, I stopped watching Succession after the. Never mind. Uh, it's too weird. Up in the high rise, the guy at the window. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis President Neil Kashkari is warning if supply chain disruptions don't resolve soon, the Fed may be forced to start a recession. Supply chains are whack-a-mole. They put out one fire in this one part of the world, and then something else flares up somewhere else. It's not going to be in 2022 when supply chains get sorted out. Hopefully it'll be in 2023. We're back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Zach Valisi. U.S. consumers are experiencing record high inflation. We've all seen it at the gas pump or at the grocery store. There are a few reasons for these price increases. Labor costs are high. Energy prices globally have been extremely volatile since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the supply chain remains considerably crunched. Businesses are working hard to emerge from the worst of the pandemic shock to the economy as consumers want to spend all that pent-up demand from COVID-19 isolation. In an effort to balance the soaring consumer economy with the crunched supply chain, the Fed raised short-term interest rates one quarter of a percent in March, half a percentage point in the last week, and plan at least two more half percentage point increases in June and July. 
That would ideally put short-term interest rates at more of a neutral place, but one Fed official, Bank of Minneapolis President Neil Kashkari, warns that what the Fed has done so far, it might not be enough. Here's Becky. A new essay from Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari is titled, Policy Has Tightened a Lot, Is It Enough? The publication of the piece followed last week's 50 basis point rate hike from the Fed. Neil joins us right now. And, and Neil, let's, let's take the short answer to this question. Has it tightened enough? Yes or no? Well, I don't know is the unfortunate answer. It's really going to depend on do we get some help from the supply side of the economy? We don't at the Fed don't have the ability to fix supply. We can only bring demand down by tightening monetary policy. The question is, how much of that are we going to have to do ourselves versus do we get some help on the supply side? And so I'm confident we are going to get inflation back down to our 2 percent target. But I am not yet confident on how much of that burden we're going to have to carry versus getting help from the supply side. Well, that's a pretty big burden to carry, especially when you realize that you can't fix those situations. Is that, in, in your mind, is this a situation where if the supply chain does not get fixed, the Fed needs to keep hammering away at it and, and, and knock the inflation, the economy down to the point where demand is, is really hampered and the economy may be seriously hampered as a result as well? Well, in the scenario that you've just painted, which I, is not my base case scenario, but we also can't rule it out, imagine that the economy, economy's potential is somewhat less than we thought it was, the supply potential. It's still our job to get demand into balance with supply. So at the end of the day, we have our job to do, which is our dual mandate, maximum employment and stable prices. And I'm confident that we're going to deliver on that. I'm hoping that we're not going to have to carry all of that ourselves. But right now, there's just a lot of unknowns. What is your base case? Well, my base case is that, you know, the companies that I talk to still say that they are hopeful that supply chains will get sorted out over time. It's taking a lot longer than I expect. You know, in full transparency, I was squarely in team transitory camp thinking that these supply chain issues would have really sorted themselves out by now. They've been taking a lot longer than I had expected. And then on top of that, we, of course, have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have the COVID lockdowns in China. Virtually all of that news is in the wrong direction. It's all bad news as it relates to supply chain and inflations. And so I'm still optimistic that companies are working hard to rectify the supply chains, but I'm less confident on how long it is going to take. Meanwhile, the American people are paying prices that are much too high. And so that does not absolve us of having to do our jobs. Hey, Neil, you were very forthcoming uh, recently, a couple months ago, I guess you said, yeah, I was wrong uh, about inflation, dovish for too long, and you, and you support probably six rate hikes. Just trying to figure out, um, and I guess the corollary to that is that some people say the Fed lost some credibility, and they say that, that why should we feel confidence now with what Jay Powell was saying when, when they missed so badly uh, on inflation? I'm trying to understand whether you, there were certain things that this were under the radar. So A, it's, it's the way that uh, maybe the uh, energy sector has been treated. I mean, President Biden, before he was elected, said, I'm going I'm to shut down fossil fuels. So th it, that has not been friendly for, for energy prices. There's um, a lot of spending that was done during the pandemic, and they wanted to, to do even more spending uh, for Build Back Better. Uh, and that was obvious or apparent to a lot of people. Uh, and and um, then there was the Fed that gets blamed a lot for staying, you know, for QE buying so much, you know, so much paper and, and not allowing price discovery. There seems like there are some obvious things that you could have seen that, that, you know, 
would indicate it wasn't going to be transitory. What, what do you think caused it? How did, how did the Fed miss so badly and you miss so badly? Well, I think the biggest surprise for me is that, uh, the, well, first of all, the virus has taken longer to arrest than I had expected, and that is still keeping some people on the sidelines. So the supply of workers, the supply of labor has not reco recovered as fast as I thought it would. And then second, the biggest surprise for me that I'm still wrestling with, by the way, is that there's still two and a half trillion dollars of quote unquote excess savings on household balance sheets, and it's not being spent down yet. And so I keep asking our economists, how is all of this cons consumption being funded? It looks like it's being funded from current income. That to me says it's much more uh, sustained. It's not transitory. I would have expected by now more evidence that these household balance sheets were being spent down and then we'd be transitioning back to something like the normal that we had experienced. And so in that piece you referenced, Joe, a couple months ago, I said, you know, there's a possibility that the economy has now been pushed to a higher pressure equilibrium than it was before. And if that's the case, then we're going to have even more work to do to bring it back down to an equilibrium consistent with our 2% target. But look, we're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. I wish we were. We're going to look at the data and facts. And if the data comes in differently than we expect, we're going to change our approach. And you've seen that over the last several months. Monetary policy has tightened dramatically. We've actually withdrawn accommodation even faster by some estimates than we added it in the spring of 2020. Do you worry, Neil, that, that raising rates, and, and whether it's through a series of 50 basis points or maybe 75 does at some point come back on the table, if you're trying to increase supply through investment, you're cutting off your nose despite the fit, your face. You you want to, you know, you want capital deployed to ease all the supply constraints, and it's going to be more expensive to do that every time you raise rates. It's it's almost a catch-22 and a very difficult and and blunt tool that the Fed has to to just try to destroy demand. It's a real problem. I I don't know. You sure you want to keep doing this? Well, we have our job to do. You know, we have to bring inflation back down, and I'm confident we will do that. But remember, the cost of capital for most in, for most large firms is still very, very low. They can still go fund themselves at a very attractive rates. So I think we're a long way away from the cost of capital being the barrier, for example, to firms investing in the energy sector. I do think it's more lack of confidence on where energy prices are going to be over the medium term to see what kind of return they get on their investment, and also the regulatory environment that you spoke about. Hey, Neil, um, the Fed has a dual mandate, and that's to focus on inflation, but to also focus on unemployment, the jobs market. Um, in the past, we've talked about how the Fed probably has even more mandates than that, worrying about a, a series of other things from the economy overall to, to what might happen with the stock market. Is it fair to assume, because at this point you sound like you are pretty laser focused on the inflation piece of it, understandably so, inflation is destroying things right now. Is it fair to assume that you're not paying that much attention as a, as a body to what happens to the stock market at this point? It's, it's going to be focused on inflation and what happens to the market happens? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we've, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I never focus on the stock market as a goal. Uh, we pay attention to asset prices as it comes back around into psychology and spending behavior. But ultimately, it is our dual mandate that drives us. You know, for five years up until the pandemic, I was probably the most dovish member of the Federal Open Market Committee. And I, was, I took that view because we were undershooting on inflation and I still saw there was slack in the labor market. So if you're undershooting on both sides of your mandate, that means the monetary policy is too tight. Now we have a very strong labor market and we want to keep it strong. 
but inflation is much, much too high, and we have to bring inflation back down. And ideally, if we have monetary policy dialed in right, those two things will be in tension. We'll be at 2% inflation, and we'll be at a, a very healthy labor market, and we'll have confidence that we've got it right. But right now, it's just imbalanced, and we need to bring it back into balance. You, you just said you don't focus so much on the stock market unto itself, but you do focus on the psych psychological impact of, of the price of assets. And effectively, what I imagine you're saying is the wealth effect or the lack of a wealth effect. Given where you've seen assets move over the last month, how do you think that that psychology has changed? Has, do you think that, and also given some of the other numbers you were just talking about in terms of how much household wealth families have, how much more does that have to come down to change the psychology? Well, it's a good question. You know, when I think about this, this um, regime that we might be in a higher pressure equilibrium, the wealth effect is part of that. So stock prices were very high relative to pre-pandemic, home prices very high relative to pre-pandemic, and then even the lower income households that don't own stocks or don't own a home, many of them have much stronger healthy balance sheets than they had before the pandemic. My theory is that all of that is leading people to feel more confident and to spend more. And maybe that's what's pushing us into this higher consumption, higher spending, higher inflation regime. So yes, the stock market has come down. Home prices are still very high. The, the latest data is they've still been ro quite robust, even though mortgage rates have climbed quite a bit just over the course of this year. And again, household balance sheets continue to be very strong. And so, you know, we just need to keep paying attention to the data. Some of the, er the most recent inflation data on some measures is a little softer than we had thought might come in. So maybe there's some evidence that things are starting to soften just a hair, but we just need to keep paying attention to the data and seeing where it comes out before we can draw any conclusions. But, but just in terms of, of metrics or thresholds that you're gonna be looking at, how much more would you think you'd want that? I mean, I don't know if you want to say this, how much more would you want the housing market to come down, for example? Well, I'm not personally. I'm not looking to try to drive home prices down. I think it's pretty, un, you know, unusual circumstances when home prices across the country fall. We've obviously lived through that, and that's very painful. But you could imagine that home price growth would slow down quite a bit. I mean, the latest growth data that I saw was double-digit home price appreciation year over year. That still seems very, very robust to me. And so, and I talk to people who are out trying to buy homes, and there's still a lot of bidding going on for homes that it's very hard to buy a home right now. So I think there's still a lot of uh, opportunity for housing to soften somewhat. Doesn't mean home prices have to fall. Uh, and again, look at household balance sheets. You could see more of that uh, excess savings get spent down as we re return back to more of a normal type economy consistent with 2% inflation. So those are a number of things that I'm looking at. And obviously wage growth, wage growth continues to be very strong we could see some softening in wage growth, not necessarily layoffs, but at least some softening in wage growth to try to get to more, a more sustained economic environment. Neil, this is another area where the Fed has really kind of played a big role in this. You can say that the problem is with housing is that we're, we're watching these prices grow. That is another supply chain issue. That's another issue where there's just a not, not enough supply in the market, and that's why you see these bidding wars go up. The Fed is in the position of unloading all these mortgage-backed securities now that you guys added to the balance sheet. So even if home prices start to co come down a little bit, it's not going to matter for somebody who's borrowing a mortgage to go ahead and, 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 and make that purchase. Their, their costs are going to go up anyway because it's so expensive. It's going to be a different market once the Fed is moving out of the mortgage-backed securities market. We don't know what that's going to look like. 
Well, you can see it. You're right. Um, you're right, Becky. The, the sector of the economy that we most directly impact with our monetary policy is the mortgage market and therefore housing. And just over the course of this year, 30-year mortgage rates have climbed from around 3% to around 5.25%. And by that measure, we have removed accommodation even faster than we added it uh, in the spring of 2020. And that's because people are looking at what we're saying we're going to do. We've got strong credibility and that those price adjustments in the rates are being brought forward very uh, aggressively and very quickly. And so I'm confident that we should start to see some softening in the housing market, but you're exactly right. I mean, here's the challenge with inflation, why inflation is so problematic. It's the lowest income Americans who are most punished by these climbing prices. And yet our policy tools to tamp down demand most directly affects those lowest income Americans as well, either by raising their cost to get a mortgage, just as you said, or if we have to do so much that the economy were to go into recession, it's their jobs that are most likely put at risk. And so this is a difficult challenge, I think, for all of us. But we also know that letting inflation stay at these very high levels, it's not good for anybody. And it's not good for the economy's long run potential for anybody across the income distribution. Wage inflation is always the thing that scares people. It, with, once the wages kick into high gear, it's really hard to stop the inflationary picture and the inflationary spiral. Um, when you're talking about such a tight job market, what does the Fed or what can the Fed do, if anything, to try and get people back into the job, into the job market, higher labor participation? I mean, what, what numbers do you look at there? What, what do you think the Fed can do, if anything, on that? Well, this is, you know, going back to the comments we were talking about, the energy sector and high prices is the cure for high prices, that famous quip. That's also true in the labor market. I mean, prior to the pandemic, year after year, businesses were telling me it's a historic labor shortage. We can't find workers. And as wages slowly climbed, people came off the sidelines and we were all surprised. It turned out there was greater labor potential than we had appreciated. That is still true. I mean, I still think that there are people on the sidelines. And as they get more confidence that it's safe to go back to work. As the schools have reopened and childcare becomes more readily available, it becomes easier for families with young children to go back to work. And you know, my family's one of those families. So there are things that can get better and, and higher wages attract people to come in. The other thing that we're seeing profoundly across the economy is a reshuffling of workers where people are moving away from what I will call the toughest jobs. You've seen a lot of people who no longer want to work in long haul trucking because that's a really tough job being away from your family for a week. But there, you can get them to work locally for local truck drivers or people are leaving the childcare industry, which is itself a challenge that I just mentioned, because that is very, very tough work for very low wages. And if Walmart or Target are paying $15 an hour, a lot of folks are saying, well, why don't I just go there? It's an easier job and I make more money. So there's a churn in the labor market that's going to take time to sort out. Uh, but ultimately, higher wages is very powerful in bringing people back in. Neil, you said you talked to the oil companies in your district and with the Bakken being there. What else? Who else do you talk to? Who else do you hear from? What, what do you think are the most important areas where you get your information? Well, I talked to, you know, one of the things that we're lucky about, we've got the Bakken, as you just mentioned, Becky. We also have a lot of global companies here headquartered in Minnesota that have global supply chains, uh, companies like 3M and Cargill and General Mills, uh, Medtronic, uh, for example. I talked to a lot of them just to understand what's happening around the world. And it's those types of companies that said to me, their supply chains are whack-a-mole, that they put out one fire in this one part of the world, and then something else flares up somewhere else. And so they're constantly having to shift around, trying to get things under control. 
They're the ones who last fall opened my eyes and said, hey, it's not gonna be in 2022 when supply chains get sorted out. Hopefully it'll be in 2023. My recent round of calls to some global companies has said, this is all getting delayed because of Ukraine and because of COVID in China. And they're, you know, they're guessing right now when, when things are going to get better. And so that's quite concerning to me, but we have to take that on board as we think about where the economy is going over the next two to three years. Neil, thank you very much for joining us today. Again, Neil Kashkari is the Minneapolis Fed president, and uh, it's good to see you today, sir. Good to see you. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, venture capitalist and Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian on the latest tech trends, the future of Twitter, and will we ever return to work? I don't think we're going back to a world where people are going to be able to be forced into an office for, for many of these tech companies just because it's not what the best people want. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Q. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. Joining us right now for the latest on tech investing, social media, and so much more, Alexis Ohanian, Reddit co-founder and 776 founder. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, I, we got to talk about 100 things, and you're doing also some good work, which we should talk about as well. But let's start with what's happening here. And and how you how do you see this? Do you see this as a, a shakeout? Do you see this continuing to to falter? What's the what's going on inside the uh, Ohanian uh, family uh, family office right now? Look, I am very grateful to be doing early stage venture investing these days because there is there's really never a bad time, and you could even argue that tougher times help found amazing companies. Um, so in that regard, you know it's business as usual. As I look out. It is clear multiples had gotten pretty darn high on tech companies. Uh, They're going to bear the brunt of this. But when I'm thinking out, and as I usually do in in 10-year timelines, nothing about this has me thinking any differently about the fact that technology is going to continue to be a bigger and bigger part of every single industry. The, The fundamentals of technology are not going anywhere. The fundamentals of what software can do are not going anywhere, the fundamentals of the internet, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, 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 I still believe in business cycles. I still think that there is a very long and bright future ahead, um, especially when it comes to technology. But, uh, you know, we're in the midst of something right now that is the market reacting and markets are gonna do what markets are gonna do. And have you, have you found though that the private market, I mean, do you think that your colleagues in the private market have actually marked down their assets to match what's happening in the public market? And also, are you seeing opportunities that you think 
where you say, this is cheap, even in the public market. Maybe, maybe I should actually do this. You know, it is, it is absolutely starting to happen on the private side, certainly on the later stage. Uh, folks are reevaluating. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's a good little dose of sobriety for everyone, for founders, for CEOs. You know, we've had a tremendous bull run. I don't know, someone smarter, can be, smarter than me could talk about how un- unprecedented it's been in the public markets. And, and so I do think a little bit of sobriety is a good thing. And, and for CEOs, we've been coaching for at least the last six months now. We've been encouraging them to really obsess over burn, really focus on, on getting to cash in and, and profitability. Um, all the sort of stuff that you say when, when you know that folks are looking a lot harder and more critically. But I don't spend a ton of time on public uh, stocks. Every now and then I'll go in and, and, and mess around on my phone and, and buy a few things here and there. But it's, it's not something I spend much time in. And, and I, but do I think there is opportunity to get some deals? For sure. And, and again, I think the, the North Star for me is 10 years out, what are the businesses that are still going to be providing value and infrastructure and, and, and just economic activity and, and software and technology is still very much going to be the heart of everything. Where do you land on crypto? You've been a, an early crypto evangelist. We were watching it just fall. To, I mean, I hate to say fall to pieces, but um, you know, I think Becky was mentioning earlier in the show, when you look at where the average person's gotten in, they're, they're now net losers. The... You know, look, I've been in crypto now for over 10 years. I seeded Coinbase in 2012. So I've been a long-term hodler. I have been through many boom and bust cycles in crypto, which, as you all know, is a lot of volatility. Um, so again, I, I think in that way, I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit more numb to it. Uh, and if anything, these are the times when I actually get even more excited to be investing in companies that are building around this technology, crypto. Uh, because this this sort of weeds out the this weeds out the speculators and and the folks who are sticking around and have stuck around through other crypto winners in the past and there have been multiple um, those were the ones who were building the next generation companies that ended up doing really really well so uh, you know obviously you hate seeing all this red uh, but <laughs> lived through all these gray hairs are just from crypto boom and bust cycles over the last decade and you know it's a volatile asset but. I'm always looking to where the builders are and who's creating value and utility, and I, I continue to be incredibly optimistic about Web3. Hey, Alexis, can we talk just a little bit about the idea? You, you just said you've been telling your companies for six months and the, the, the founders that you talk to, they've got to cut back and make sure that they're being very careful about expenses. We just heard this from Uber over the weekend that they're doing the same thing. We know that Meta has cut back on hiring. It's going to try and be careful about expenses. But when you're doing that in a really tight labor market, um, if you cede the best hires to somebody else and say, we're, we're going to be careful on these things, do you risk falling behind the competition when it comes to trying to be the best and, and get the best and the brightest? Yeah, it's interesting, right? The talent wars, especially in tech, have been at all-time highs. But we have seen salaries, starting salaries, even for, for relatively new employees to the workforce, balloon which I know can feel like a jarring thing juxtaposed with, with other industries. But in tech, the demand for talent has never been greater. We saw things get super inflated. Um, this, this, this might be a, a bit of a correction to that, but I still think that that talent war will continue. And whether it's folks who are looking for ways uh, to, to, I don't know, find, find opportunity, whether they're going to go start a company, um, in many ways, this is often the best time. Uh, because it gives folks a chance to seize an opportunity they may not have taken otherwise. 
And on the whole, I feel like it's got a regenerative aspect to it that actually helps the industry long term. I'm just trying to think from the, the positions of a Meta and an Uber, is this wishful thinking when they think they're going to get expenses under control or are they going to spend on the talent and say, okay, we're going to have to cut everything else as a result? Wow, oh, this is a hot take. I, most, of us, most of us in tech, when we're thinking of the real difference maker employees, we're not thinking of folks who are going to companies like that. Um, fo you know, there's a, there's a different mindset once you get to a company that's pretty well established in, in the market and the, you know, the, the folks who are really hungry, the folks who are really motivated tend to be attracted to either starting businesses or, or joining folks that are earlier on the ride. Um, and so I do think it's just a different mindset. The, the, the folks that you're going to be attracting are probably going to be looking for other things outside of just, you know, flat comp. Um, you know, the work from home flex work issue is certainly a big one. I don't think we're going back to a world where people are going to be able to be forced into an office um, for, for many of these tech companies just because it's not, it's not what the best people want and that sort of dictates. But uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch. I do think a, a lot of different big trends are coming together here and, um, and, and going to have a pretty profound effect on the way we think of work. Hey, Alexis, the other thing I want to ask you is a social media aficionado is, I don't know if you saw, but there was a, a leaked business plan that came out yesterday, last week, I should say, on Friday. And the New York Times reported on it at Twitter in terms of what Elon Musk thinks is possible. He says he thinks Twitter could reach 931 million users by 2028, and also that he could quintuple the revenue to $26.4 billion in that time. What do you think? You want to bet on it? I, you know, I've said, I've said on here before, I, Running a company like Twitter, a community-built platform, very different from one that deals with the laws of physics, <laughs> because physics are very rational, humans are not. But I loved the fact that he was talking about moving away from a dependency on advertising and moving towards a model that's based on, on membership, whether that's recurring revenue, whether that's it, you know, any type of revenue stream that's aligned with your user base, unlike advertising, is one that gets me excited. So could he do it? You know what, a lot of people have lost a lot of money betting against Elon, and I'm not interested in taking on that bet. So I, I, think, I think there is a, a bright future ahead for, for Twitter. Alexis, you, you're in New York, though, making a different bet uh, tonight. Why don't you, why don't you yeah. tell us why you're here? Yeah, well, I, you know, uh, the Robin Hood Foundation is an amazing nonprofit. I'm a New Yorker. I was born in Fort Greene. Uh, we've got some exciting news, and, and I've, I've gotten to know the folks over there, and uh, a lot of the work that they're doing to support, especially uh, child care here in the city, uh, something close to home. I'd actually also just <laughs> incidentally invested in a company doing cord blood banking called Anja Health. It's been something on my mind uh, for quite some time now, and, and whether it's the for-profit work we're doing, investing with 776, or now the nonprofit work that we're doing with the 776 Foundation, I want this to be my legacy. And uh, so I can't, I can't, Paul's going to, Paul will be real mad at me if I, if I give away too much, but, uh, but uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight and, uh, and, and I hope do a lot of good for New Yorkers and, uh, you know, just get a, give every New York baby a, a, the same chance that I had uh, growing up and, and hopefully even better. Alexis Ohanian, thank you uh, for being on with us this morning and for all the work that you're doing uh, for New York. And hopefully we'll uh, maybe be able to bring some more news to the viewers tomorrow morning. Thanks. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening and starting your week with us. 
Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 